You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I quit med school today. That shouldn't come as a surprise to you. I'm changing specialties, Dr. Grant. Have you ever heard of body modification? <laughs> Fühle wie Dr. Mengele heute Abend. What's that? Twins, ja? Yeah. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, Mr. Mike White. American Mary, Mama, let me be. All right. And joining us this week from the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast, the lovely Iris. Hello, hello. We're going to be Americanizing Mary. There you go. And, uh, oh, uh, Robo Host is back. I can't believe you are talking about this movie on my birthday. Well, happy birthday, Robo Host. This week we're talking about the 2012 film American Mary, directed by those twisted twins, identical twins, Jen and Sylvia Suska. It tells the tale of med student Mary Mason, played by Catherine Isabel, who's working towards becoming a surgeon but decides to pay her bills by doing some body modification, and that's when everything gets a little bit weird. American Mary is a film that takes on the horror film into new directions and talks about all kinds of things, such as body image, ambition and much much more so iris as our guest this week when did you see american mary and what did you think i think i saw it uh, as soon as it hit netflix like maybe about six months after i was in the theater and i enjoyed it it wasn't dead hooker in a trunk but kind of disappointed slightly because uh, i wanted to see more of the body horror and i thought that's what it was going to be about i also saw it on netflix instant where it has been for a long damn time, because I think I saw this probably like a year, a little bit less ago. I kept hearing some um, interesting comments about it and said, oh, let's give this thing a shot. I enjoyed it, most of it, except for the end. But we'll talk about that later on, and we will be getting into some spoiler territory. So just FYI. And since it is on Netflix Instant, uh, no reason not to go check it out and then come back, because, of course, we'll be waiting for you. And for you, uh, RoboHost. The Soskas are not horror directors. Horror directors know about tension. They know about character. They know how to use gore correctly. They know how to put in a scare. The Soskas do not scare. They don't have it in them. They're women. That's the thing. Women don't know how to do it. Oh, wow. Well, the president of uh, the National Organization for Women is with us this evening, uh, Mr. RoboHost, and I'm sure you'll have many more enlightening things to say as we get into this discussion. So why don't we get into it, shall we? American Mary, kind of an interesting thing. There seems to be this uh, sort of, I guess, Virgin Mary aspect. Ave Maria keeps popping up. Yeah, a bit of a, a virginality to it. Yeah, we kind of start the film with that, don't we? Um, one of the first things that we see is her doing a little bit of an operation and uh, doing some practicing of her her new skills as a surgeon. Yeah, she's uh, cutting and sewing up a, I believe it's a chicken. 
Yeah, so I guess maybe as uh, the movie progresses, she kind of pops that cherry. I'm glad you said that, not RoboHost. Mary Mason, we get to meet her. And one of the things that's kind of interesting for me as this goes along and for a while kind of threw me is how sort of unprofessional the professor is in this movie. We see her, she goes to class, and the professor's just letting out a volley of four-letter words and directing them at her. And he seems really kind of like – he almost seems like a jilted boyfriend more than a professor. Miss Mason. Since your listening skills are so adept, perhaps you can tell me how many molecules of oxygen a molecule of hemoglobin can hold in the blood for transport. Four. And hemoglobin is what? The iron containing oxygen transport metal of protein in the red blood cells of vertebrates. Anywhere else? In the tissues of some invertebrates. Do not bring cell phones into my classroom. No, sir. It is very fucking rude. Have you been to college lately? No, no, no serious. I, I don't mean that like, uh, you know, like sarcastically or anything, but uh, the, a lot of the professors kind of... They can be pretty hardcore and they can be mean. And if they think very highly of themselves, they will rip into you like nothing else because they feel that you are wasting their time if you are not up to par as to what they believe you should be. See, I've always seen it the other way with professors where they're just like, I'm here to collect a paycheck. I don't care if you learn or not. You want to waste your time in my class? I don't care. I have a feeling that this guy, I mean, he's teaching medical school affiliated with this hospital and all these other doctors and stuff i always have the feeling that he's kind of doing that alec baldwin thing playing god or whatever where he feels that the world owes him a favor because he is just so great and maybe he even kind of thinks like what am i doing teaching these kids in this class and it just felt like he was just so full of himself. And I, I do have to say, though, that I kept being distracted because his name is Dr. Alan Grant. And I kept thinking, like, now, is this before he went to the island and fought the dinosaurs or is this after he came back? We soon find out that not only is she a med student, but she's a broke med student, like a lot of college kids these days, and probably has a huge amount of bills, and decides that one place where she can make some money rather quickly and easily, because she's a rather attractive lady, is uh, the strip club. Yeah, and uh, I mean, what stripper doesn't want bigger boobs? Well, I think she would be doing the stripping, not doing the, the boob implants, or at least that was the original plan. Right, right. Though it quickly goes south a little bit when the strip club owner, I guess he's the owner, Billy Barker, played by Antonio Cupo, he asks for a favor and needs a guy kind of taken care of, and uh, that... It's like one thing leads to another, and pretty soon she's getting all these calls from a woman named Beatrix Johnson, uh, who's played by Tristan Risk, and that kind of takes the whole movie into a really different place than it, we thought it was going. That was interesting where it, it did end up going. And it was, you know, for me, it was kind of, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that, okay, they know she's a med student. Uh, and I'm sure somebody's going to show up with a gunshot or something that's going to need to get fixed up. Yeah, I was thinking it would be gunshot as well or, you know, some sort of accident at the club or something else, you know, much more nefarious. And then when Beatrice shows up, I'm really glad that it went in the direction that it went. So Beatrice, who is 
kind of a Betty Boopish type, but God, I feel so bad for Triskin Riss. Triskin is such a, a lovely, lovely lady, and the makeup that she's wearing just makes her look so hideous. <laughs> just she looks really kind of messed up. I mean, because if you think about how Betty Boop looks in the cartoons. That translating to human form doesn't really work. I mean, she doesn't have the huge head that Betty Boop had, which was like three times the width of her her body length. But she does have kind of the weird nose and just the I think the nose is the primary thing that just kind of really is disconcerting to me. And she doesn't even want surgery really for herself. She wants it for a friend of hers. And it kind of reminds me of what was in the press, I think it was maybe a year or two ago, and maybe it was part of the inspiration for that, is that woman who had herself recut to look like Barbie. Actually, I think it was kind of like a teenager that has been doing that. And uh, with her mom's permission in the UK, and taking pictures, and it's just really creepy to see her that way. Yeah, she took that Barbie girl song really to heart. This whole thing in here that's really interesting is when she goes to when Mary goes to meet Beatrice's friend and the stuff that she wants done is all of this sort of to be honest is to be turned into a doll. She wants certain aspects of of sexuality or sexual parts sort of removed or changed in a particular way. I don't think it's really fair that God gets to choose what we look like on the outside. Do you? I'm sorry. That's not really a fair question. It'll probably surprise you, but I've never had any of these surgeries to become a sexual object. You don't work with Beatrice? Oh, no. I'm a fashion designer. Ruby Real Girl Designs. Oh. No one looks at dolls in a sexual manner. Do you know why? I don't know why. guess it's because they don't have all their parts. Exactly. You understand perfectly. A doll can be naked and never feel shy or sexualized or degraded. That's what I want. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not really understanding you. Just take these off and seal up this as much as possible. Take off the extra bits, too. I was looking at this whole section and, and really kind of the film itself kind of, I think, kind of talks to this is this whole idea of you know, body image and women, all the leads in the film are women. I mean, there are, there is the doctor and like I said, the, the guy who's uh, the, the strip club owner and things like that. But really the, the film kind of takes place in a world of women talking amongst themselves about these issues. And I thought it was kind of interesting sort of how Im- body image and sexuality and those things are, are related in the film. Body image for women, especially here in the U.S., it's addicting. It's something that frustrates you, something that makes you anxious. Uh, it puts you in a panic sometimes. It's just a real hard thing to have to be comfortable with yourself in your own body, especially when you're seeing stuff you know, on TV and everything of what you're supposed to look like or what society thinks you should look like and then what you yourself feel like looking or should look like. And I kind of feel like in a way that this is – that there's sort of like two aspects of the way the body modification is used in the film. The first is when it's introduced and they're talking amongst you know these, these lead characters who are, who are the women and they're getting these surgeries and, and things like that. It seems to be about, like you were saying, the, those image issues. But then when you get later into the film and she does more of these modifications and she's doing them you know all kinds of 
things for various people, men and women, you get the idea that people have accepted themselves and are starting to use themselves as like sort of human canvases in some way, and they're experimenting with ideas. And that is much more, I think, much more empowering than maybe what the first part is. The way that this character, uh, Ruby, what do they call it, Ruby Real Doll, it's like she wants to take control of her own body. She wants to have that power. And Beatrice, the same thing. Beatrice idolizes this character, wants to become the character. Ruby feels overly sexualized, and I think she sees Barbie or, or any of these type of dolls as being less sexual because they don't have the genitals and they don't have the nipples and they've just been kind of desexualized, and I think that's kind of what she's going for, even though it's kind of this weird paradigm of she's very sexy, but yet without the parts, and in the end, that's going to come back to, to haunt Mary, but I appreciate that she is kind of taking control of her own thing because Mary and so many of the women in the film are just viewed as sexual objects. I mean, we'll especially get to that when we start talking about when the doctor comes back into Dr. Grant comes back into this film, but all of the men want the women to be what they want them to be. It's like Billy is constantly having fantasies about Mary and is changing her to be what he wants. And so I was glad to see uh, Ruby and Beatrice kind of taking control of themselves and making themselves over into what they thought would please themselves. But is it actually pleasing themselves or are they trying to fit an image that they think will please society? Maybe Beatrice is thinking that. I don't think so, though. I Ruby, it feels like to me, almost wants to hide behind the surgery and wants to change herself so that she is a less sexual object. I mean, that was the impression that I got from hearing what she said. And there's a, a part later on where her boyfriend or her husband sees her in this kind of desexualized state and he gets really angry about it and to me it's like good for her she did what she wanted to do to kind of protect herself but i can see where you're coming from with that for beatrix there's nothing more iconic recognizable or more beloved female cartoon than betty boop so when you see her and you get this idea of betty boop she has that um would be that instant acceptance and the instant like which is probably what she's looking for. Not to be invisible, but to be out there and loved immediately. Uh, with Ruby, a real doll, yeah, she did empower herself, but I'm just wondering if the image that she wanted was to have that uber-sexuality on the, on the outside, just to be this beautiful, gorgeous person, woman. Well, I guess it would be empowering to take away that sexuality so when a guy does, you know, is attracted to her, the parts that are important to the guy, I guess, so how she thinks, they're gone. So is she really still important? Around this time, she gets invited to this party that the doctors are going to have, which includes her professor. And right around the time that she meets Ruby and Beatrice and all that, she starts investigating this whole like body modification thing and happens upon these websites and understands that there's like this whole kind of like subculture going on with these various people. And they're very much about sort of showing off what they do to other people and, and taking ideas from others to sort of, build themselves better, I guess, um, you know, but not in the sort of $6 million man kind of way. This party that she ends up going to 
where it's all of these, I guess, um, interns, male doctors and professors and whatnot from school. And I actually found this scene probably the most disturbing one out of the entire film, especially from a psychological standpoint. Well, it's interesting. Right before that party scene, when she's invited to the party, it's like she's doing the rounds at this hospital and she's a really great student. Uh, she not only, you know, because she's doing these extracurricular kind of things, but she really knows what she's talking about. She can walk the walk and talk the talk. And these doctors are sadists. The ones, the male doctors that seemingly are in control of everything, they are really sick. The scene where the doctor has her go in and tell a family that the husband has had a heart attack. And so she has to go in and break this horrible news. She comes back out and he immediately sends her back in to say, no, the husband has died. I mean, it is just disgusting how blasé this doctor is about having Mary go in and do this and, you know, trying to push her buttons and her having to deliver this terrible news and everything. And so I wasn't really surprised when we get to this party and find out that these doctors are the assholes that they kind of come off in the earlier scenes, you know, that we have the professor who we saw earlier, who's an asshole. And we have the doctor character who invited her to the party. Who's also an asshole. And it's just, we ratcheted up quite a few notches when it comes to this party scene. I think it's just a lot of the God complex. They were trying to show that most doctors have bedside manners for doctors has dropped significantly. And maybe that's something that was they were trying to bring across. I don't know. But I totally believe that it was just that God complex of they have, you know, basically your life in their hands, literally and figuratively. And so that's what I think he was trying to, I don't know, manipulate Mary into playing his game, which is pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's very fucked up. This party scene... For me, one of the most fucked up things is when they're welcome Mary to the party, she meets a few of the doctors, and they're, they give her a drink, and they're walking her through, is it like the kitchen or something? And there's this woman on a counter, and all of these guys are jacking off. And I think that they're about to do like the bukkake scene kind of thing. And it's just like, this is really messed up. And that's not even the most messed up part of this party. And what's great about that is it's in the background. You see yeah. it, but like they don't linger on it. It's just like, oh, well, that's just happening. There's sort of this sort of blasé camera when it comes to that, where it's just like, no, oh, this just happens to be the party. Which is a really freaky party. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and then it just gets worse from there, where she ends up being videotaped, being raped after being drugged at this party by her professor. And like I said, that psychologically, I think, is probably the most horrific thing that's in here. I'm not even talking about, you know, gore aspects or anything like that. It's like that seems really hard to watch. It is hard to watch, but um, I was kind of expecting it by the party and the way he was acting. And, you know, it was really kind of like, OK, somebody's going to get messed up. And I don't know if maybe it was because I had already heard a few things about the movie, but it was it was kind of like a, a setup. It, you could tell it was a total setup. Yeah, I was kind of yelling at the TV at this point, just like, turn around, get back outside, 
do whatever you need to do, but leave. And that she didn't leave was just making me more and more upset and a little angry at her. It was just like, come on, you got to realize what's going on. The spider sense should be going off at this point and that it didn't. And that, you know, she was knocked out so quickly by this, you know, roofie or whatever it was. It's like, Oh God, you know, just seeing that terrible thing unfold and being powerless to stop. It was, it just hurt. You were having one of those. Don't go in the basement. Don't go in the basement moments. You done dropped your gun through the window. What you going to do now? I'm sorry, but, would you have to say that you were getting a little tense? A little bit. Yeah, so they kind of did build a little bit of tension, didn't they? No, RoboHost said that they can't build tension. Oh, okay, that's right. <laughs> Damn you, RoboHost. I am a licensed journalist. So at this point, it, uh, it kind of now adds in some elements of the revenge flick because she hires or basically asks for a favor from the goons at the strip club to bring her the uh, professor. Yeah, and the main goon, uh, Lance... He ends up being the nicest character in the entire movie, which I really appreciate. And he's kind of like, I won't say faceless because we see his face very clearly, but he kind of hides behind sunglasses most of the time. But he's just, again, he's in the background for most of the movie, except for one scene. And that scene makes him human and does it in such a, a wonderful way later on. And it's just like, you know, it, it comes at the perfect time. We get the right amount of information and it really turns Lance into a human being. And I really kind of appreciated that. And it kind of goes to show that these people who are on the fringes of society and these quote unquote freaks that Mary is, is now kind of going to be dealing with, with the body mod community and everything that they are the normal people and they don't seem to be the ones who are, you know, ready to fuck somebody over like these, you know, high society doctor types. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. Totally. I, I kind of felt like he was, you know, like just like, you know, most guys, sometimes that you see them, they're extremely overbearing and you're like, well, you don't want to fuck with that guy. You get to know him and they're these huge teddy bears. And that's kind of like what I kind of felt with the plants. I, I liked his character a lot. One of the more uncomfortable scenes is sort of that um, knowing that something really bad is going to happen to that doctor (laughs) and just sort of his reactions as he's been, you know, basically taped down, I believe, with duct tape or rope or something. And he's got that uh, that mouthpiece in, which is sort of the equivalent of the lid locks in uh, Clockwork Orange as she continues to describe exactly what she's going to do to him over the next several hours. I don't know, Rob. I kind of really enjoyed that scene. I was so so happy during that that she was letting him know that shit just got real. I was uh, very happy about it. But I mean disturbed in the way that um, – I, I would say that there's a parallel scene for this in another film for me. And that's that scene where Marcellus Wallace tells them what he's going to do to them. <laughs> for his revenge and it's and it's sort of that you know yeah you know you're gonna get revenge but you're like god damn that sounds fucking horrible i was reminded a lot of hard candy during this scene the the scene when ellen page quote-unquote castrates the guy from that film so i was just kind of right there with this uh movie just like yeah fuck this guy up this guy deserves everything that is given to him and when we come back to his character because Initially, I thought that she killed him, and then that we come back to his character a little bit later on, the payoff for that is even better than death. It is, because basically what she did was she stripped him of of being a god. That's basically what she did, and I I, I love that. I'm with Mike. I thought that this 
this part of the movie was I was like, yes, finally do it. And that we got to see a little bit of it was pretty awesome. And, and I wanted to see more. I, I just wanted to see this guy just seriously torn apart and just made feel like he was a human fluid sack because that's basically what he was in the end. I, I love the transition in this scene where she um, starts explaining how she is going to cut his tongue apart. And then we cut from that to one of her patients now who has a um, popsicle stick, whatever you call those things, a tongue depressor between the parts of their tongue and is able to kind of twirl it and, you know, hold on to this depressor and everything. And that's when we kind of get the idea that she has moved on from this and is now almost using the skills that she learned by practicing, quote-unquote, on Dr. Grant to build up this new clientele of body modification patients. And she is this kind of underground doctor who is going to do what people want, whatever it happens to be. And it seems like to her, the more extreme, the better, because there's a part somewhere around here where a guy comes in and he just wants some piercings. And I love the way that she's just like, Just get the fuck out you 20-year-old Satanists want to be reject. Does it look like I do piercings in here? Did you see an advertisement somewhere for piercings with my name on it? No. Lance! Lance takes his black bag and throws it over the guy's head and just, you know, tosses him out kind of thing. He's going to take him to, I don't know, an alley someplace and drop him off or beat him up and drop him off. And I really kind of appreciated that she is providing the service to this community and there's this whole kind of underground you know we talked last week about the shadow economy of prostitution and now here's another kind of shadow economy of this body modification community going on and she's the person to go to when you want the extreme mods even though when there's a montage of uh, people showing off their modifications i think there's one lady who just has like it almost looked like pierced nipples, and I'm just like, oh, what? I, I couldn't figure out what her modification was. Maybe it was just my TV is shitty or something, but it was just like, I, I could see on some people, but I couldn't see on others what their mod was. And this is because of the internet, because of that one website that we're introduced to, and that whole community, that she's introduced to uh, identical twins who kind of look familiar. Very familiar. They look like Agnes Moorhead. Man, that's an old reference. I don't know if anyone's going to get that. Anyhow, so we meet uh, the directors themselves and writers of the film. And they play these identical twins who want to have, I believe it's uh, their arms removed and placed on the other. I was watching this. uh, My wife loves tattoo shows. And she was watching this tattoo show the other day. I think it's called like Area 51 or something like that. Or that's the name of the tattoo shop. And these two sisters came in and they're like, oh, we want to feel even closer to each other. We want to have these two tattoos. And I just said, you know, that's so not right. They should have their left arms removed and replaced (laughs) with one another. Though they had other stuff going on and maybe you guys can help me out with this because they have this whole plan of each twin will get their left arm removed and place on other bodies on each other's body and then they'll have some stuff put in you know horns and all this kind of stuff uh, on their head but what was the other thing because there was this reference to them getting more in touch with themselves and i didn't necessarily catch that nor did i 
have the opportunity because Netflix kind of sucks in this way to pause the image and show me what was on that drawing that they were showing to Mary and Mary refers to later as her blueprint. Well, I can't remember. I, I know it was the horns and the arms. Yeah. I, I'm drawing a blank on that, but the one thing that I find kind of um, well done in here and adds to the creep factor with the two of them is they seem to move in stereo. Yeah. It's very well timed. And there is also this kind of odd, almost sexual gaze and touch between the two of them. Yeah, and that's what got me when they said that they wanted to be more in touch with themselves. I was like, okay. But yeah, there was definitely that look going between them and the way that they would hold on to each other's hands with their pinkies and stuff. I was like, yeah, these two aren't just sisters. They seem like they're lovers as well. Well, you know, who could you better love than yourself? Exactly. It's like the ultimate form of narcissism. Oh, totally. I love myself, and I love you because you look exactly like me and remind me of myself. So she works on them, and there's a few other people. As you said, there's sort of this montage of various things. And at the same time, there's an investigator looking into uh, what happened to certain people, including Mr. Uh, Mr. Dr. Grant. John Hammond came to see them, and I haven't seen Dr. Grant in months. He took off in a helicopter. Yes, yeah, so, well, welcome to Odd Reference Night here at the Projection Booth. This is finally around the time where we get to see what's going on with Dr. Grant as well. And as, um, Iris, what did you call him? A uh, a bag of fluids? Yeah, a human, a human fluid sack. Yeah, he's pretty messed up. Mouth removed, I'm sure the genitals have been removed, arms, legs cut off, hanging, um, suspended. Uh, there's a great documentary, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, where a lot of it has to do with body modification, and there's a lot of this suspension stuff going on in there, which always reminds me of, uh, here we go into another obscure reference, A Man Called Horse. Yes. And seeing these people being hung up almost by, like, meat hooks and stuff, it's like, ugh. And to see this guy, I was very happy to see him being hung up on hooks like this. But when I see other folks, it really kind of sketches me out and did it with him a little bit as well. But, yeah, so we get to see Dr. Grant's fate. And we also, I want to say it's, like, right around this time that we find out from this investigator that... The other doctor, the doctor who is kind of pushing Mary into this whole thing, uh, who invited her to the party and pushed her into uh, telling the people about the dead father and all this kind of stuff, that he provided a list of women that were potential suspects and doesn't necessarily come out and say that they were also Dr. Grant's victims, but we can easily imply that from just this list that this other doctor has. So then this other doctor becomes a target as well. Um, even though to Mary, she's fine with him being out there and living and breathing, but Billy, the guy from the strip club, kind of takes it into his head to uh, take care of this other doctor. Well, Billy wanted to be her hero. Billy definitely wanted to be her hero. Uh, the documentary you were talking about is called Modify. Thank you. Yeah, which is a terrific documentary. See, but we all know that Billy's not supposed to be a hero. Oh my God, you guys. <laughs> We are showing our age so bad. There <laughs> uh, you go. So this winds us up at, uh, I believe, is the end. So, uh, 
you know. Well, not quite. Not quite. Because we've got all this stuff going on. We got Billy trying to take care of this doctor for Mary, even though she doesn't ask it. We have Mary finding out that her Nana dies. And this took me the second viewing to figure out how she knows that Nana is dead and all this kind of stuff. And her deleting the contact from the iPhone. I think since I'm an Android user, I didn't necessarily get that she was deleting the contact from the iPhone until the second time I watched it. There were a lot of things I didn't necessarily get till the second time I watched this. And I have to say, I completely glanced past the Ruby Real Doll uh, boyfriend or husband scene. And I know that when we talked to the twins that they said, oh yeah, this, this is, you know, in the movie and the ending shouldn't be a surprise to people because we plant the seeds early and I kind of have to call shenanigans on it because I really just don't think that this character that they introduce in one scene who doesn't even get a line, he's Ruby's, and I say boyfriend or husband because I think Beatrice says that she has both a boyfriend and a husband, Ruby does, so... I'm not sure which one this guy is necessarily. It's like he looks at, you know, Ruby kind of reveals herself. I'm thinking months later, a long time later, because it's about halfway through the movie that we get this really short scene of her revealing herself to this guy and him getting really kind of pissed off. But before he even says anything, the scene cuts. And the way that it's placed in here, it's after a couple like really high-intensity scenes, and you're about to take kind of a breather. So I totally forgot this, that this scene even existed. So when the ending happens, I will just say that it was a real surprise to me and kind of a WTF moment. I think that's what they wanted, though. You know, just for you to have a this whole time, the, the whole movie is a WTF moment. If you really think about it, you've got the body modifications, you've got the party, Mary, all of a sudden, you know, that what the fuck moment with Billy. I think the whole movie itself was was maybe just a WTF. I don't know. It, it felt like the movie was obeying the movie laws for a lot of it, except for this part, because it just felt like a character that was introduced and basically a throwaway scene kind of comes in and, and you know, at the very end, it's like, whoa, wait a second. It's like, it, it would be like if the guy who had the briefcase and cliffhanger uh, on the airplane, the very first guy that we see in the movie, like if he comes back and killed Sylvester Stallone at the end of cliffhanger, it's like, whoa, wait a second, where did this guy come from? And then you have to strain your brain and go, oh yeah, he was there for like five seconds at the beginning of the film or just dropped into the middle of the movie at one point. It's like, what? It's kind of like, you know, he was the cook from Hunt for Red October. It's like, where did this guy come from? I don't even remember seeing this guy, but I think they did a little better in Red October. Goddamn cook. All right, so we got one pro who I believe is Iris, one against, who's me. How about you, Rob? What did you think about the ending? I think it works. I I like the fact that she doesn't survive. I think that that's good. I think that a regular, quote-unquote, American horror film, maybe she would have gotten away with it and we would have been, you know, given a bunch of sequels. I don't know. I don't know if she necessarily needed to be punished, though. I don't think that anything that she did was that bad. But was she really being punished, or was somebody just... Well, I guess, you know, if somebody's seeking revenge, I guess you are punishing that person. But I don't know if, you know, as the audience, you would see her as being punished or just being a victim. 
I, I just saw her as dealing with a bunch of lowlifes, and that eventually kind of caught up with her. So it's right. So would that be kind of like victimizing her? Was she just caught up in a moment that she couldn't help herself and just had to keep on keeping on so she could stay in school or you know pay off bills or you know or was she actually enjoying what she was doing and was she starting to play god and was punished for it see i don't see it as punishment i just sort of see it as she was dealing in this underground economy and dealing in this underground world and basically all the things kept stacking up that's all it's like the ball just kept rolling all these things kept happening and eventually someone was going to come down on her either this investigator was going to find out what happened and she was going to go to jail or someone was going to offer at some point for some reason all right i have to go back on something that i said as far as nothing that she did was wrong the security guard who found her and dr grant he did not deserve to die but I still think that he was kind of like, you know, had a dead meat sign around his neck anyway. I just felt like she was a little justified in her actions in that any person who is killed at the end of a film who has been doing anything slightly naughty through the rest of the film, to me, that's kind of like the movie gods are punishing her. So I, I just I didn't necessarily see her deserving that. I don't see her deserving a sequel. I liked that there were certain moments in the film where she became a zombie. You know, we know that after she gets raped at the party, she's going to become a zombie, but she comes back from that and, you know, gets her revenge. And then after her Nana dies, she becomes kind of, you know, emotionless as well. And there's a few other times where bad things happen and she has this flat affect to her. Like, even when she scares the girl at the club really badly and everything. But again, she scares the girl. She doesn't cut the girl. She doesn't punish the girl. She doesn't do something wrong there. Because had she done something to that girl in the club who was sucking on Billy's dick, she said, says it herself, you know. Just the wrong place, wrong time, the wrong dick in your mouth could have happened to anybody kind of thing it's happened to me before so i understand where that is going on i just didn't see this kind of weird deus ex machina showing up at the end this character that we don't know whatsoever and i just didn't feel like she i i didn't get the impression that you did rob that she was in danger even though she is dealing with these low lives and what i would say the low lives i'm talking billy because he just seems like a big scumball so you know, even though he, he wants to have his heart in the right place, but he just doesn't know how to do it whatsoever. Yeah, I don't think that there's this tension that she's going to be offed. I don't believe that to be the case at all. I don't feel that within the film. But I just sort of feel that there's sort of this you're in this world kind of thing, and these things have happened. And that doesn't – they're not necessarily going to be forgiven. They're not – you know, they're not just going to go away. So I think it's only a matter of time before certain things catch up to you and then it can sort of become – that ending in a way becomes like um, – and the easy rider. It's just they're driving down the road and bam, you know, it's like that's it. It's kind of what I saw with this. It's like, you know, bam, that's just what happens because you're dealing with all of this stuff. You're dealing with these underground people. You're dealing with these people on the fringes. I like the Captain America and Billy – comparison we blew it i was also thinking you know maybe 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 not the victim then but maybe somebody that you can sympathize with you know you could put yourself in her shoes kind of how far would you take things and how far would you go 
for either money or for the love of what you're doing. And I think maybe a lot of uh, the people that had gone seen this movie and were totally pro. And I'm not totally pro because uh, for me, I would have been more happy if, you know, you get to see the request that people want and then you get to see the end. I wanted to see the process because I think that would have made this movie just completely awesome. I'm just wondering if a lot of sympathy was put to come from that very ending because, like I said, a lot of the people that I had been talking to about this movie, they totally sympathized with her. They thought it was awful and they wished that, you know, she could have kept going or, you know, the doctor scene was really unnecessary. Just give us the body modification, stuff like that. Uh, to me, like I said, I saw her more of as a victim of the circumstances she was put in and, and not, you know, kind of like the gods punishing her or anything like that. Yeah, I was reminded a few times of this movie called May, where it was um, a woman who's kind of making her ideal mate. And so there's murder and mayhem and a lot of sewing and stuff going on in that. And I felt for May, even though she wasn't necessarily going about things the right way, she kind of had this twisted logic to her. But Mary just seems so, even though she's doing some terrible things at times, like especially to Dr. Grant, though I will still say that he deserves it, she just seems so normal throughout the entire film. And I sympathized with her, but then when the end came, I just felt a little cheated. But I can definitely see what you guys are both saying with this. I guess I just would have wanted... The scene with either maybe like it is completely random or it is one of her clients coming back. But the way that the seed is planted, where it's planted and everything, I just don't think that it necessarily fits in with the way that the rest of the film is going. It just felt like this kind of. I don't know. Uh, it felt like the end of Death Game where the ASPCA truck hits the two main characters. And it's just like, what? Where did this thing come from? It just, it, it's, it was a little bit of a shocker to me and not a good kind of a shock. So you don't like the opera ending of where he dies, she dies, everybody dies? That was uh, very operatic, wasn't it? And I felt a little bad for her because it seemed like she was going to sew up that hole and just keep on going. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Tristan Risk. One of the actresses in the film, she plays Mary's modification patient, Beatrice Johnson, after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at adamandeve.com 
It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick to manage this. You'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle anything. Action. <laughs> Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back. For just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Miller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures of VHS or visit adventuresofvhs.com. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. How did you get into burlesque? I got into burlesque strictly as a joke. A friend of mine was having a birthday party for her boyfriend, and she wanted someone to come out of a cake thing and do the Marilyn Monroe kind of happy birthday Mr. President sort of thing. It was a little strict. He was being silly and cheeky. Apparently, it was a hit because his band was like, well, we're playing uh, we're playing on Granville Street next week. Do you want to, like, put them together and open for us? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure, sounds good. And it just kind of started picking up more things, like, you know, because we didn't really have many, like, between-girl dancing shows in Vancouver at that point. And so that was kind of a novelty and I picked up one more work and um, then I started doing my own night and then I found other people who were doing it in town too and we all kind of started a community and so it, it just kind of all kind of like grew out of that which was really cool. And uh, I quite enjoyed um, just kind of exploring like this, it as an option because you know you kind of tell yourself oh I can't do that but yeah, actually yeah this is a viable option if you want to pursue it go for it <laughs> so how long ago was that that you kind of got into it that would be about 12 years ago now which is amazing because I'm still 22 that's so weird you out there at 10 years old you didn't I know. have all the I, shake, well, you I'm know sure. I always did look older for my age well maybe it's the smoking yeah something like that <laughs> On your bio on your website, littlemissrisk.ca, and I had to be sure to say the .ca, you describe yourself as a circus darling. What is that about? <laughs> I started incorporating some very basic sideshow uh, standards into my repertoire when I used to tour with a band um, as a performance artist. When I quit the band and decided I wanted to stay home, there was a troop of burlesque slash circus people in town who were forming a troupe at that point. And it was a very it was a very elaborate show that was like, you know, live music and visuals and and the circus performances and, and it was just it was kind of like a new take on it. So it was really fresh for me. And that's when I got into doing more of the extreme circusy stuff like hair hanging and, you know, bed of nails and, you know, ladder of swords and things like that that were just a little bit more than what I'd been doing 
as a solo artist, A, because I didn't have the opportunity to practice with the rigging, and B, um, I didn't really have much of a space to practice in other than what I had. Like, I wasn't about to go out and assemble a ladder of swords on my own to see if I could do it or not. But in this space, I had that opportunity, so I kind of just went with it, and it's something that I've just kind of kept embroidering on, and I see lots of burlesque performers incorporate aerial silks and hoops into their repertoire, and it's really cool to see the different disciplines kind of blurring lines and crossing over. Um, you know, like you get that with belly dance to burlesque, and you get that with circus to burlesque, and it just, it's just really, really nice to see that the art form is mutating to survive. So obviously burlesque is very much a, a form of performance. How did you go from that into acting, or had you always been an actress? Um, I used to do a lot of musicals when I was uh, younger, in my late teens and um, early-ish 20s. And um, I, I liked doing stage stuff, and I left it for a long time uh, because I was touring with the band for six years of my life and then doing burlesque uh, when I wasn't doing that and just in town and around uh, Vancouver. And then I got opportunities to do some stage shows, like some plays, and uh, one stripsicle. And I kind of went for that. And it was cool because it's been a while. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun to be doing this again, not just burlesque. Because, you know, you don't want to be a one-trick pony. And then what wound up happening was the Foscos had approached me asking if I wanted to read American Mary. And I said, yes. And they're like, yeah, no, we have a, a small part if you're interested in the in the film. And we'd love to bring you on board as dance coordinator. I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. And then when I met them face to face, we talked online and I kind of, I'd seen Dead Hooker in a Trunk when it had its screening at the Rio. When we all got in the same room, it was really eerie because it's like, oh, we have a lot of like similarities, like in idiosyncrasies. And it was really uh, fun to kind of find that out about, like, you know, when you meet someone in person, they're as good as they are on, on uh, online. And uh, they're like, well, it's, uh, it's too bad you can't act. And I'm like, well, I can act. And they're like, well, can you do voices? I'm like, I can do voices. Like, oh, you know, you can dance. Do you want to read for this? And I'm like, well, I didn't want it before until you offered it to me. But yes, I don't want to do this. I want to read for this. Yes, 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 yes. So I went home and memorized this stuff. And that was kind of my introduction into the film. I was done things where I was like silent on camera for like, people's music videos and stuff. And I was more of a body. But this is my first foray back into film, you know, kind of more proper acting. So I was really stoked for it. And ever since then, I've gotten lots of really cool opportunities that come my way because of it. So it's kind of like the burlesque thing. It's like, I didn't really set out to do it, but it seems to be working for me, so I'm not going to fight it. So I'm just going to see where this goes. How did they kind of describe the, the role to you that got you interested in, in it? Well, they had given me the script to read. And then once I read the script, I said, this is really cool. What role were you thinking in the mind? And originally, it was supposed to be the stripper that gets her face bitten by uh, by Sylvia when the uh, Berlin twins come into the club. So that was like, you know, it was like a like small dancey part. And, it had like it was kind of a cool moment, and then uh, that was kind of when they were like, "Well, why don't you why don't you try doing this Beatrice thing?" And I was like, "Okay, well, I can I can try doing this Beatrice thing." I would have been happy just be having my face in, but ultimately, I was pretty stoked that I got to read for Beatrice. <laughs> now, how long did it take to get into makeup for that character? Uh, that was two hours in the chair to get in, and one hour to take it off. Wow! Yeah. How did it feel, kind of portraying that that level of body modification? I liked it. Um, I did a lot of mask work when I was in high school, so between that and having a dance background, talking with my body was just as easy for me as talking 
with my dialogue. So um, I wasn't relying solely. I'm actually terrified to try to use my real face and stuff. And in, in in the in the chance I'm slightly overacting, <laughs> whereas with Beatrice, I mean, she's such an over the top character. That was easy. It's just like just be crazy. It's like okay, no problem. But like you know, anything that's like a little more subtle and like you know focuses on like what my actual face looks like. It's like oh, that's a little bit more intimidating. What were your attitudes on body modification before the film, and did they change while the film was being made? No. Nope. I've always uh, been into people who are mods. Um, I'm a mod myself. And uh, when I went, left high school, I initially wanted to be a tattoo artist. So it, it, it was always a culture I identified with. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for the people who do the more extreme body modifications who are literally wearing their hearts on their sleeves. So I have a lot of admiration for their courageousness for doing that because not everyone's got the balls to do that. Okay, i got to ask, what kind of mods do you have? I've got piercings and tattoos, which are fairly tame, but I've also been practicing uh, waist training and corsetry for about 10 years now. So I can reduce uh, from 24 inches to 20 comfortably, and then when I uh, tight legs, I can go down to 16 and a half. That's kind of more of a hurry up and take the photo thing, but yeah, that's and it's not permanent in the sense that when I take my corset off, it doesn't my body doesn't totally stay like that, but you do see a change in your body over time. When you're on set with the Saskas sisters, what is that like? How do they direct? Do they kind of divvy up the work? or I've, It's very rare to have two directors on the set, so I'm always yeah. curious how that works. Um, one will go and talk to the crew, figure out lighting, camera angle, liaise with the um, DOP, um, and then the other one usually will come and talk to whoever's asking about the scene. It's like working with two very talented velociraptors because... You know, it doesn't matter where the crew is or what they're doing. It's like there's one one director from either side to keep you on task, which is why they're able to do small and independent films for in like such a tight time constraint because they're working together in tandem versus you know one person trying to do everything and getting stressed out. You've got two people doing everything, probably getting stressed out, and um, but they're getting it done really well. And I've never seen them yell. They've never lost their cool. Their their crew and their cast always adore them and love working with them. Like it's I haven't heard anybody say any bad things about working with them before, and I'm I'm pretty sure that's a rarity in this business. Do they do any of that kind of spooky twin thing? There's a little bit of that. You can tell when they're looking at each other. Sometimes they're having like private conversations in their heads, and they can read each other really well. So you know, there's there's some sometimes when you feel like not exactly sure what, but you definitely weren't included in the conversation, and not a word was spoken. How was it portraying that character, and kind of what has been the reaction? I've got lots of really positive feedback. A lot of people, particularly in the trans gendered community, um, have reached out to me um, because I'm I'm also self-identified as queer. And, um, you know, I just, I say, you know, like, be true to yourself, be who you are, you know, you shouldn't have to hide this. And, you know, I've had lots of people who they're like, you know, I don't think anybody else understands and, you know, you seem to get it. And I'm just like, hey, I, I can't even begin to imagine what it's like. And this comes from a place like for, for a lot of these people who do have extreme body modifications, they're striving to be something they feel they they weren't born with, whether it's to look like a lizard or to be a woman from a man or a man to a woman. Basically, whoever they were born with was born wrong, and they're from their outside reflect who they are on the inside. And I can't imagine how it is to go through life and feel like that, and feel like you know you just you're, the, the soul doesn't fit the body. Like that's got to be a terrible feeling, you know, for the people who have like the strength and buck the social trend of you know not living a lie to please other people to you know follow that to themselves, I have a lot of respect for because, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. And there's a lot, you'll lose a lot of people in the process. 
but hopefully, you know, you gain a lot of people as well. So here's hoping people gain strength from that character. But that's a lot of the feedback that I've gotten about Beatrice, which is really, I feel it's uh, it's very flattering and very empowering for me to hear that I'm a positive role model or she's a positive role model for people who are in that situation. Were you a Betty Boop fan before the film? I'm more of a Jessica Rabbit type. <laughs> The Suska sisters are very much kind of on the forefront of the women in horror mo- movement. You know, they're very much doing what a lot of people would like to do. And they kind of, I've seen them get a whole lot of flack for being women and being directors and being in horror. What do you think about that whole like women in horror kind of thing? It really sucks that there has to be a thing called women in horror. It would be nicer if it could be a celebration of women in horror, but not because we're trying to be suffragettes in this particular industry. I feel like they've been, everyone's been making strides for it. Like, you know, there was the Scream Queens in the 80s. There was, you know, the the 90s movement. Now it seems to be kind of, it seems like now people are taking it more seriously. And I know they have gotten flack for it, but I think anytime there's opinionated strong women pursuing what they want to do and not taking anybody else's shit for doing it, they're going to have people who get their backs up about that. And, you know, it's just, it's a sad state of affairs that that's just kind of what's going to happen until people get over this attitude and they they lose that filter. They're not seeing um, a female horror film. They're seeing a horror film and they're just there to enjoy it for that. Not like, oh, this is so revolutionary and so forward-thinking. We're seeing a movie made by a woman. It's just like, hey, this movie's really awesome. It doesn't matter who made it in the first place, you know what I'm saying? So I'm really hoping we can get towards that day sooner rather than later. And, you know, I <laughs> to anybody I, I, who who wants to give themselves good shit for that, I tell them they can straight up kiss the fattest part of my ass, and they better pucker up and get the stuff because they got a lot of territory to cover there. Thank you. That was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Don't mind me. I'll just get off my soapbox now. (laughs) Has American Mary led to other roles? And if so, what have they been? Oh, American Mary, it it opened Pandora's box for me. It's fantastic. I completed Estron 6's feature film, uh, Jello-style horror comedy called The Editor. Um, in the summertime, and I shot a short film with Jill Six and uh, Lawrence Harvey from Human Centipede 2 and 3 called Call Girl. And I recently completed shooting on uh, the uh, Microbay production of um, House of Manson, which is uh, talks about Manson's um, kind of spiraling with his family and the, the Tate Bianca murders. I've got a few more projects coming up uh, at the forefront. Uh, just re- recently um, announced that I'll be voicing a character named Miss Risk for the Chainsaw Sally cartoon, and uh, Christopher Judge for Stargate One is also lending his voice to that show, as well as April Oberall, who uh, plays um, the original Chainsaw Sally in the live action. Yeah, there's a few other things. Uh, Love Lovesick is coming out, or uh, is going to be uh, shooting in June. And uh, that's kind of a, an interesting body horror film that I'm really excited to do. I'm like, oh, this is disgusting and disturbing. This is going to make couples go home and have, like, terrible fights after they see this. This is amazing. I can't wait to shoot this. And then you're still doing the burlesque on top of all that? Always doing the burlesque. But that's good. I mean, what else would I be doing? This is why I'm not cut off in uh, Game of Thrones. And everyone's like, what do you mean you haven't seen it? I'm like... When will I have time to sit and watch an entire series of anything? I live in the Twitter and the Vine generation. I have like 
only room for 140 characters and an eight-second attention span. All right, we're back. Thanks to Tristan Risk for coming on the show. You can find out more about her and her work over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we are back, and we are talking about American Mary. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the look of the film. I find it very beautiful to look at. I was really paying attention last night when I was watching it again as far as the use of the mise-en-scene, the way that the screen is laid out and everything. I like that there are a lot of parts where Mary is off to the side and we're just kind of getting a little bit of her, um, especially when it comes to like the back of her head when she's you know, going down an elevator or whatever, just, you know, feels like she's kind of being edged out of the story as the movie kind of goes on. I don't know if that was what they were going for, and I'm hoping that that wasn't Netflix doing some unnecessary cropping. No, I mean, I'll agree with you in terms of the look and the staging. I mean, it it's very beautiful, given that it is an indie production, and we know that they didn't have millions and millions of dollars to do it, and to make it look as good as it does. For me, it was kind of like uh, like the scenes that you were talking about, Mike. It was kind of like you were accompanying her, like you were standing behind her and walking with her, or just kind of, you know, like maybe a student with a, a teacher. You're kind of off a little to the side and watching what's going on. So it, it kind of like um, included you as part of the film, which was kind of like a cool thing that I thought they were doing with this. I like the use of the POV in the bathroom scene that we were talking about earlier where, you know, it's the girl who was in with Billy that is in the bathroom with Mary and is in the stall and Mary is going through this ritual of putting on the bib and, and opening up the tools and putting on the gloves and all this. And we have this POV shot from the girl in the stall looking at Mary and this kind of shaky cam and the 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 way that we hear her voice or her breathing increase and everything i thought that was very effective as well you know really kind of very scary for me and that really kind of worked kind of turning mary into a little bit more of somebody to be afraid of which i appreciated iris you brought up uh, dead hooker in the trunk which is the first film from them and i haven't had a chance to see that i don't know if mike has and I have not. I was just wondering what your take on that film is and sort of uh, what do you see as maybe a comparison between the two? Um, it's kind of like, uh, let's say, the Soska sisters were taking their first steps with uh, Dead Hooker in a Trunk and took off running with Mary. Um, Dead Hooker in a Trunk is fun. It's the type of uh, situation movie where <laughs> you know these guys go out, they go have some fun, they wake up and there's a dead hooker in their trunk. And the story continues off of that. And um, it's, it's a fun film, but um, watching that one and then going to American Mary, you could tell that they kind of cut their teeth a little more. And um, I don't want to say they were more serious about what they're doing, but you could tell that there was a bit of growth in uh, the filming style, the direction that they were taking the movie in, also the screenplay. I was hoping that I would get a chance to see it before this. Sadly, that is not on Netflix Instant at this moment. But um, I'm hoping to check that out uh, very soon. And they have a bunch of other projects coming up, uh, which you'll hear in, in just a few minutes. But I wanted to kind of ask you, and I don't know if this is just you know by coincidence or I'm putting more into it than I really should is do you think that there really is some sort of thing with Canadians and like body horror? I mean, between this and looking at someone like Cronenberg. 
I would have to say yes, because any of the Canadian movies that we have that are horror, you see this grotesque body horror. And I think <laughs> the Canadians, that's what they do best. They apologize and, and they do body horror. And they probably apologize about doing the body horror. Yeah, I read an interesting fact today on Twitter that the average Canadian apologizes 45,000 times a day. Well, since I'm kind of Canadian, I guess I apologize maybe 20,000 times a day. <laughs> But then again, I'm French-Canadian, so we're allowed to be rude, I guess. I stayed away from Dead Hooker in a Trunk because of the title. I was just reminded of some of those really shitty videos that they used to review in the Film Threat Video Guide way back in the 90s. For some reason, I thought, like, oh, is that a Richard Kern film? Is that a Nick Zed film? Why? why <laughs> what is this dead hooker in a trunk? Even Hitler had a girlfriend and dead hooker in a trunk. It sounds like a deluxe double feature. Well, also, I guess maybe throw on a third would be Hobo with a Shotgun. It almost sounds like the same kind of uh, like title schematic. Yeah, so I, I had no desire to see it until I found out that these two directed it and to see what their work was on... American Mary, I'd be very curious to go back and see their first work because to me, American Mary does not look like a sophomore film. This is really polished. I mean, I guess it is kind of that idea of horror directors or a lot of first time directors making something lower budget, what they can afford or not afford a lot of times for their first film. And then if they're given the money, they're given the funding, then they're able to do something bigger and better for their second film. So I, I can. I imagine that it's probably something like that. So it's always interesting to go back and see kind of, you know, the, the birth of where these folks are coming from. So I should definitely check that out. I guess it'd be kind of like seeing within the woods compared to like an evil dead and then to see evil dead two is, you know, leaps and bounds beyond that. So I'm very curious if there's the same trajectory with the Soska sisters, if their next film is just going to, you know, completely blow us out of the water because American Mary, looks damn good and despite my complaints about the ending i find it to be very entertaining and i would recommend it to folks the other thing that's interesting is i remember reading an article years ago it was an interview with someone about uh bands and saying that you know you spend your whole life to make the first album and then usually the sophomore album the second album isn't as good and i think with this and having not seen dead hooker in a trunk yet but iris saying that and then also talking about the the quality of the film i would have to say that they did not fall for that sort of second project slump and they've got a bunch of other stuff uh coming forward as a matter of fact i think they have like two possibly even three projects that are that are on the hook right now there was it was just announced that they're going to do another one and they're they're just busy 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 and what i'm thinking about with all this busy 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 with them is uh you know you haven't heard from in a while mike who's that i don't know did you, did you unplug RoboHost? i mean i know he takes up like basically like half your basement because it's one of those old school computers that runs on vacuum tubes and everything like univac yeah, yeah exactly so can you like wake him up and find out what the hell's going on because i would like to get his feelings on what he thinks about the suska sisters now what will happen to jen and sylvia is they'll meet boyfriends get knocked up get married probably not in that order and disappear They'll just disappear off the face of the earth. It's happened to so many women. You know whether they're actresses or directors or cameramen or whatever you want to call it. Whatever roles they've had in the horror industry or the film industry. 
as soon as they get hitched, they settle down, they get a real normal job, they can't be bothered with this. I mean, look at Barbara Crampton. She disappeared for like 30 years and just decided to come back recently to get some convention money. Rob, I don't know if I'm happy that I woke up RoboHost or not. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Iris? Uh, you know, do you think women uh, have any ability to make any uh, film, as it seems here? Well, being a girl, I'd have to say uh, Robo is so Robo-wrong. Um, you think about all of the women directors that we have, like Barbara Streisand. She hasn't disappeared. I mean, she's still hitting the circuits. I mean, she was just on Jimmy Fallon. I mean, we even have like a month for women in horror. I mean, if women weren't worth it, they wouldn't have a, you know, something like that. Or look at all these idols that we have. You've got Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, you've got Barbara Steele. You've got all these beautiful women that were in horror movies and they made an impact. So I'd have to say he's totally wrong. Well, I'd have to throw a uh, Catherine Bigelow on the pile there. Oh, yeah. And of course, we've talked about Near Dark on uh, the projection booth here. Big fans of that film, at least I am. Near Dark is a great film. Well, you know, the great thing is, is we have one of these Woody Allen moments right now. It's kind of like Annie Hall, you know, where uh, the guy in line is complaining about media theory and Marshall McLuhan. And then Woody Allen goes over and goes, well, I just happen to have Marshall McLuhan. Well, hell, robo host. We just happen to have Jen and Sylvia on the show this week. So why don't we take another break and play the interview that we just did with the Twisted Twins, just for you, Robo, here on the Projection Board. Hello? Hi, Jen. Hi, Mike. Yep. How's it going? Awesome. You got both of us. Hi, it's Sylvia. Hi, Mike. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you for waiting, like, literally fucking forever to speak (laughs) to us. You must have thought we were, like, the biggest cunts in the world. They're like, ah, make him wait a month longer and a month longer. It's how we get off, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, at least I didn't, uh, you know, at least you didn't turn me down on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I hear people take that really personally. I don't know. I've never yeah. seen any sign of it, but I hear it. <laughs> We're joined on the line by my podcast partner, Rob St. Mary. Hello. Hi, Rob St. Mary. That's an awesome last name. Yeah. Are you friends? It was uh, St. Marie, but it got anglicized when my family moved to Michigan like 150 years ago. Um, our last name is Shoshka, the proper Hungarian way, but we like Soska. I, I just, uh, uh, <laughs> that's a long story with no exciting end. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. And we have a great mutual friend, Andrew, from... Uh, Remorg Radio, who's fucking amazing. I love that man. I love him so much. Yeah, he was great. He was on our uh, Adventures of Ford Fairlane episode forever ago. Have to get him back. Yes. Oh, yeah. He speaks very highly of you guys. Not sure why, but. <laughs> yeah. No good reason for it. We're just excited to have you on because there is obviously a lot to talk about. And, um, you know, uh, just to start off, do you remember what your first film memory was? First movie you get to see and had an impact on you? Oh, wow. It'd probably have to be Poltergeist. That changed your entire life. Because uh, we always were just such horror movie junkies. I don't know why, but back when video stores existed and they had like a very nicely decorated horror section, we would just hang out there because it felt like a little piece of Halloween that was left there all year long, which is obviously our favorite holiday. And then my mom, for some reason, that was the first one she let us watch of any horror movie. And I don't know why, because it's designed to fucking terrify children. <laughs> and it, it's very effective at it. 
It is. Well, the guy who rips off his face looking in the mirror, what fucking parents show this up to their kids? It's, a, it's amazing. Like, thank God there's horror movies and you can actually work in that field. Otherwise, I, I'm sure we'd be in an asylum or be butchers or something. I actually repressed that memory. I watched uh, Poltergeist again recently because it was on. I was like, oh, I wonder if it'll still scar me. I literally blocked out the face ripping. And then we had dinner with Todd Masters and uh, Craig Reardon, who was the effects artist on there. And I was like, that fucked me up, man. And he was like, oh, very humble about it. He was, yeah, he was like, oh, thank you. He said, no, no, actually, that was fucked up. How many prosthetic artists get that reaction, though? Like, oh, you scarred me for life. Thank you. So when did you kind of decide that making movies was going to be the thing for you? And, and not only that, but horror movies in particular. Well, I feel that girls don't get encouraged enough to be directors, writers, producers, or owners of their own production company or studio heads. We were always kind of encouraged to, you know, we loved film, but, you know, there's really the more of a, an encouragement and a push towards being an actress, a model, or a singer. And I love acting. I seriously do. But more than anything, Sylv and I are storytellers. And when you're an actor, most of the time you just chase after roles that you don't want just for the sake of being working and then eventually getting to, like, their Robert Downey Jr. place where you can basically list your role, write your script, and ask for anything you want. But when we did Dead Hooker in a Trunk, it was kind of a fuck you to all the very generic twin roles that we were being offered. And after that experience, we're like, fuck, filmmaking is so much better than acting because you really get to tell the stories that you want to do, especially when you're a director, writer. Yeah, but we definitely walked ass backwards into it. We just wanted to say fuck you to the film school we went into. And then as soon as we made this very offensive faux trailer for Dead Hooker in a Trunk, people were like, whoa, when are you making the movie? So we just started bullshitting. We're like, uh, right now we're working on it. And then we were too stupid to know better. So we maxed out our credit cards and called in a bunch of favors. And I think we're still in this industry because we're too stupid to know better. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of great director partnerships out there when you think about film. I mean, Pressburger and Powell, and then you have siblings like the Coen brothers. And yeah. I was just wondering how you guys handle that job of directing. Is Does one handle the visuals? Some handle the dialogue? Do you both handle it? How does it work? It's both kind of in the same way. Like, I honest to God don't know how a single director does it. Like, we just shot a movie, an action movie, an action thriller revenge movie called Vendetta in 15 fucking days. And we didn't even get 12-hour days on it. Some of the days we only got 11 hours just because we wanted We only had so much time and so much money to make it. And Jen and I didn't even see the whole movie until we saw our editor's assembly because she took one unit and I took one unit and we just went and we, we just shot the fucking movie. And then we looked at some dailies, but it was just so fast. And then I remember watching it and I'd lean over to Jen and then like our little editing suite and be like, oh girl, that's, that's good shit. That's how I wanted to do it. I'm so lucky to work with Sylv. I mean, it's one mind and two bodies. Sure, we get to the same final destination in very different ways. I always joke that Sylv writes the rapes and then I write the joke. She'll write something. What's the joke about that? It's pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> There's no joke about it. You're the Lars von Trier and I'm the Joss Weed and you'll do something fucking horrible. I'm like, shit, I'm going to have to be really funny in the next scene because everyone's upset. Yeah, Jen just tries to keep us from losing our jobs. Every time we have a meeting that's, like, going down to shit, and I start pitch, I'll just start pitching these things that are even worse than the ideas they already hate, and Jen just looks over at me and smiles. Oh, it's a car accident sometimes when you do that. But we really do divide and conquer uh, with the two of us. One of us will always keep the film moving, but we'll also have the opportunity to really be there for our actors. And I don't know if enough actors get you know that real one-on-one -on -one interaction with their directors 
also being proudly failed actresses, we like to get inside our actors' heads and realize, you know, what kind of stuff they need. Some actors just need a couple words and don't take, you know, any direction personally. Some you have to really, you know, coddle and be there for and be really emotionally supportive. I like the Sam Raimi version of directing. I like torturing my actors, as you can see with everything I work with with Catherine Isabel. It's just, how am I going to torture Katie this time? Well, I like the Sam Raimi approach, too, but I like dressing nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not all slobby coming to, to work every day. Yeah, absolutely. We always wear heels. Well, we didn't wear heels on Vendetta because literally we are running from <laughs> up four flights of stairs and down. And they're like, why did you run? Because if I run, you run. <laughs> well, also, I just saw Tank Girl right before I did it for the first time. And I was like, fuck, man, that is the new style. Army boots and a tank, which I don't have yet. But eventually, I really do want to have one. I can get you a tank. Tanks are, you know. Did you hear about that crazy Sylvia Soska bitch? I hear she has a tank. <laughs> Where did the idea for American Mary come from? You know, actually, way before we decided to make American Mary, we had a fascination with the body mod community. We saw an April Fool's joke that we didn't realize was an April Fool's joke, where there's these two identical twins that exchanged limbs. Well, not one had his arm chopped off and sewn to his brother's chest plate, and then the three-armed brother had one of his fingers removed and attached to the end of the one-armed brother's hand. And the creepiest part about that was the love letter underneath that said, you have to be an identical twin to understand wanting this kind of closeness. And that just disturbed us horribly. And we're like, you know, our mother always taught us that fear comes from a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge. So we just really studied and got interested in it. And it was while we were trying to sell that hooker in a trunk, and it, you know, it was, a, it was a fucking hard sell. A couple unknown filmmakers with a grindhouse in your face kind of bloody film called Dead Hooker in a Trunk. So we kind of put everything therapeutically that we we're going through in the film industry into American Mary. And instead of, you know, being a, a struggling filmmaker, she's a medical student who wants to be a surgeon who ultimately finds her place on the darker side and what people would consider not normal. It wasn't like, a conscious decision to do it like so therapeutically. I mean, we were going through a lot of stuff. My, at the time, my, my grandmother was terminally ill. Since then, she's she's passed away. But it's it's this world where you have so many uncontrollable instances. And then we, we took all that. And when it's in a script, you can kind of distance yourself from it and look at it from a, a safe uh, distance. And I guess that that's what happened. And then it wasn't until we were shooting it that they're like, are you guys feel comfortable putting so much of your real life into it? I was like, fuck, man, is it that obvious? Fuck. I think if you watch any of our films, we get so invested in them. I mean, we're not guns for hire. You see our personality just dripping from every frame, <laughs> for better or worse. As for the title, Why American Mary? Since you guys are from the Great White North, why not Canadian Mary? Oh, man, dude. Canadian Mary, she would be able to maybe get like a small little business on the side and actually do pretty good for herself, eh? But if you want to go after the American dream, if you really want to go from somewhere like from a poverty, from a lower class and really excel and be something great, you have to do that in America. That That's just one place where underdogs can get to that. That, that kind of ideology doesn't even exist in Canada. So it has to be kind of like her pursuit of an American dream, an unattainable uh, um, ideal of perfection within the workplace, within your career, within yourself. Especially it being an, uh, an analogy for our own struggles in the film industry. 
unfortunately, Canada doesn't really support their artists. And if you make horror movies and if you make stuff that isn't sad, Canadian dramas about alcoholism and incest, you can't get funding for your movies and you don't get a lot of support from the Canadian government. So truly, to be successful, you have to go to America. And even, you know, with our films, we get hired in L.A. and then we always insist on coming back and shooting in Canada and in Vancouver because we want to generate work for the people here, which is super frustrating because if you look at people like Astron Six and Jason Eisner and uh, Brandon Cronenberg and Steve Kostansky, we have some crazy talented people here. And I always get so frustrated with the Canadian government for not like supporting it because they have this ideal of what they want our movies to seem like. And the thing is... I mean, every Canadian you've probably met, we're a little fucked up and it's not in a British way. It's not an American way. It's just like this weird kind of fucked up sensibilities and in sense of humor. And it'd be nice to see that represented more in the films that you see coming out here. Well, you know, growing up on the border in Detroit, we used to get the CBC, you know, Channel 9 and watching all of the stuff. And of course, Mike and I were both, you know, heavily reared on SCTV and Kids in the Hall. So we know Canada very well. It's just less than a mile away. I love that. Have you ever come up to Vancouver? I have not. I don't know if Mike has. I haven't yet, but I really want to. Mostly, you guys ever do? You let us know. We'll take you around. We'll show you the fun parts of the city. Yeah, all three of them. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. That's a deal. There's a lot of nods in the film uh, to the Virgin Mary, and there's Ave Maria, and then there's the title. How did that kind of idea of the Mary come about with the creation of the character in the film? Well, we wanted to give her one of the strongest, most uh, recognizable names possible. And uh, being being a former altar surfers, uh, Jennifer and I have a lot of knowledge about different biblical references, and I really liked the ideology of a. Uh, the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene. And then there is Mary Heron who directed one of my favorite movies, American Psycho. And with those three Marys, it was just, it had to be Mary. It's, it just suited her so well. And being big Marvel fans, they always use alliteration for their characters like Scott Summers or Peter Parker or Wade Wilson. So it had to be a Mary Mason, which is actually a shout out to a silent Hill because Harry Mason was the lead character in those games that we were just obsessed about. Ave Maria very quickly became her, almost like her theme music. Every time that music plays, she's doing her surgeries. At the, at the beginning of the film, she's doing a, a kind of bastardization of Thanksgiving where she's taking a turkey and modifying it. And that's an amateur, beginner, uh, novice performance of Ave Maria. The second one, during the Ruby's Real Girl surgery, that's an intermediate performance. And then when she finally meets her demise and is sewing herself up, it's with the Stradivarius and it's a, a master performance performance spoiler alert oh come on (laughs) american mary (laughs) and if you haven't i'm sorry i am so so sorry (laughs) she might live in the next movie she might go (gasps) and just sit up even worse jen she doesn't die something happens to her i don't know (laughs) oh god dig up dummy one of the things that i really do like about the film is the fact that she is a strong female character and there are male characters in the film but they're not the leads and they really don't move you know the plot in major ways and the film doesn't fall into you know what what is often discussed online is being oh it's a woman's film so of course we got to talk about relationships and all this other stuff so was that very conscious on your part not to fall into those quote-unquote traps uh absolutely it's more of her story than anything else and after what happens to her with her professor i mean that's a catalyst for her downfall but there's a few catalysts the surgery with the rat 
um, the surgery that she, she chooses to do on Ruby. And it's just that at the very end, she could have reached out to somebody else, but she, she doesn't. Even the last scene with her and Billy, the bartender, it's just two very damaged people that even though he might have feelings for her, that's the, the reasons why they're attracted to each other are the exact same reasons they can't be together. And I just, I just hate it when you see, whenever you have a character or a story about a woman, you almost make excuses for why she does some horrible things. You almost make excuses for, oh, well, she was this, but, you know, she, she's, she's actually this kind of delicate flower. If you look at her, every choice she makes is selfishly driven. She has a lot of options to go in a different way. And I always like this Clive Barker quote where he's talking about pinhead and he said, I didn't give him any redeemable qualities and people still absolutely love them. And I think it's because of Catherine Isabel's performance. People are so enamored and they absolutely love her, but really she doesn't do anything non-selfish. I mean, her grandmother's fucking absolutely dying and she doesn't even go and see her you just talk to her on the phone once in a while it's just this disconnect she has with everyone i really like the relationship between billy and mary or rather the lack thereof the first time that they have any interaction at the club he completely treats her like shit and by the end of the film he's so incapable of even expressing his feelings towards her and he's afraid of her and he's infatuated by her and he's got this guilty complex over him introducing her to this world over her as well. And, you know, so often you see a female character and just a piece of ass guy. Not that he was limited to a piece of ass, but he was definitely eye candy. And so many people after watching the film said, oh, I wish she would have left with Billy. And it's, it's like, like, what movie were you watching? That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, what fucking movie were you watching? That's just what, if anybody, Lance was really the heart of the film when he gives her her license to kill in the milkshake scene. He was the most down-to-earth, honest person there. And, you know, you see a big badass sucker like him, this huge biker guy who's clearly some kind of murderer or uh, Billy. And you don't expect him to have that heart. You don't expect him to love his mom and have that, that sweet little connection with her. We touched on this a little bit before, but as far as the body modification, did you guys have an interest in it beforehand? Or, or did you kind of meet people that you thought would look interesting in the film and it developed that way? Or what, what's kind of the connection between the two? Well, we had a real uh, uh, fascination with it. A lot of it we got from BME.com, and uh, they had message boards, and we would read the message boards, and sometimes we'd post about different things and they'll find out, like, oh, I'm pretending to, like, oh, I got this done, and it's not healing very well. What could I do? And I, I just loved that kind of uh, relationship. And the funniest thing is uh, at one point I, I, I came clean. I was like, oh, hey, I'm actually doing this because I'm writing a movie sorry about writing all these weird questions and no response. And I was like, fuck, fuck, I pissed them off. Fuck, 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 fuck. Because it's the last thing you want to do because this is one of the first movies that really has people from the body mod community involved. So I started talking uh, around town through different people and we were introduced to Russ Fox who's actually does body modification. He's done several procedures on himself and he goes around the world doing different procedures on different people. So I wanted to make sure that we had a specialist consultant on set at all time and he also had his awesome cameo with Penis Guy, which I'm very proud to say people now refer to him in the community as Penis Guy. And if you ever see him, please refer to him as Penis Guy so I can go to my grave very happy with that. Being identical twins, we've always been looked at a certain way and everyone just looks at what we look like and passes judgment and jumps to conclusions. And that's a real kinship that we felt with the body mod community as well, probably not even remotely to that extent. But I could never understand why somebody would look at somebody with stretched lobes or scarification or tattoos or whatever you have 
and judge that person based on that. I honestly have some of my closest friends are Satanists, and they're the sweetest people in the world. The people that I've met that are true monsters are the ones that keep whatever their weirdness and their kinks are to themselves because they're so afraid of being exposed or letting the world see the kind of person that they really are. When you look at the body mod community, they just fully embrace who they are and what they want to be, and they express themselves through their body and flesh art, which I think is fucking amazing. I mean, you look at plastic surgery, and it's so well-received. Well, not maybe well-received, but it's accepted by society. It's the norm. You look at Ruby Real Girl, and everyone thought, oh, that actress, she's just, you know, one of those L.A. actresses. And no, no, it was with practical effects, but it's become completely accepted, whereas you look at body modification, and it's someone's own self-expression rather than trying to fit in in the North American ideal of what is beautiful. And it's just not accepted because people look at it and say it's weird, it's strange, it's not the same as everybody else. Yeah. I think it's truly terrifying when people want to look like everybody else. It if, takes, go ahead. If anything, I really hope that that opens the, the movie, people like it, and they, it opens the dialogue about body modification. Because I've seen a few people put up, you know, photos of guys with extreme procedures done on their face and they write the most stupid, ignorant comments. And a lot of it is set up by different articles and different sites that want to do like a shock jock thing. And it's not even perfectly representative, like saying that this, this gentleman can't get a job because of what he's done with different procedures. And the thing, the truth of the matter is he has a job and it's just made to do to villainize these people, which is just a modern day witch hunt. You talked about the ability to shoot rather fast and was wondering for this production for American Mary, how long did it take you to put it together? Well, it was actually a real struggle to get the film funded because it was about body modification. And the knee-jerk reaction is, that's disgusting. Those people are freaks. We don't want to represent them. And I was like, no, no, no. It's going to be shot beautifully. It's going to show that these people aren't freaks. And nobody was interested in coming on to it because they said, no, no, no. Nobody wants to see that. It's ugly. There aren't enough people in the mod community and all that. So... Our parents actually were the first investors in American Mary. We haven't had a lot of money growing up, and they spent their lives paying off our home, our childhood home, and they remortgaged that house to be the first investors in American Mary. And after that, the other investors came on. They're enticed by the project and seeing that there's already our parents that were willing to invest. And we were, I mean, I, I would have never asked that of our parents, but they, you know, offered it, and they gave it to us as a gift for our 29th birthday. Is incredible. It was a lot of back and forth on getting it done, but especially because we wrote the role of Mary for Catherine. Catherine actually came onto the film a year before we even got it involved uh, in production. And uh, it's so funny because we were so naive that when people say, oh, the movie is going to happen next month, we actually believed it. And it was always pushed back or people would drop out or it just wouldn't happen. It was like, fuck, man, this has happened on every production, which it actually does. When it did come to production, I think we got about three weeks of prep and then we got 15 days to shoot it, which is so weird because See No Evil 2 was shot in 15 days. Vendetta was shot in 15 days. And it's so funny because people are like, well, why are all these movies being shot in 15 days? And it's like, well, it's better than the opportunities I've been given where it's zero days and zero movies to shoot. So not only did you two write and direct this, but you were also in the film. How did you handle the directing when you were on screen? We asked them to turn around the monitor so we could watch them a lot. <laughs> we were very, very obsessive. And the thing is, you'll see, at least on our own movies, you'll see less of us in front of the camera because I really like to make sure that every single instance is exactly how I want it to turn out. Mary, that one scene turned out about 
90% of the way I wanted it to turn out, but I'm a very harsh critic. I'm like, Oh fuck, I wish we had done this or I wish I'd seen this and we could have gone in there. And it's a, I don't know. It's just, it's just a stupid artistic thing. It was 12 pages we did that day too. And they're asking us to cut down the thing and not do it and say, Oh no, you have to, I mean, how are we going to survive without both of you on set? And it's like, Oh, there's two of us. One of us will be in makeup and one of us will be directing and one of us will go into makeup and then the other one will continue directing. Well, how do you catch up? How, how are you going to know where you are in shooting and directing? We're fucking identical twins. We have this weird Jesus connection to each other. I can just look at her and we can have a full conversation and know exactly where we are. And Dead Hugger to Drunk was really good training for that because we had so many different jobs on, on the set. We had so many different parts. So the fact that we just had to direct, I was like, fuck, man, this is way easier than running, getting cable, lying to the cops why we're there, pretending that we have, you know, licenses and whatever. When we told some people that we were talking to you on the show, uh, listeners and whatnot chimed in on social media, those who had seen the film, and a couple were like, eh, the ending's not as strong as they would have liked. What's your take on the ending? Did you consider another possibility? You know, the ending was always how it was going to be. I think it's because we were so bummed out about everything that was going on with our grandmother at the time. Like, you get a call in the middle of the night and you go to the hospital and the doctor doesn't tell you very good news. And it's the worst situations in your life come out of nowhere and you weren't expecting and you didn't see it. And there was a couple of hints that Mr. Real Girl was probably going to be a problem with Mary, but not in an obvious way. And everything is kind of done from her perspective. So you don't really get to see like, oh, here's the setup. Oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. To me, I've seen so many sequels where the original idea of the film is completely destroyed. And I have such a, a love of the character of Mary Mason. I couldn't see American Psycho 2 with her. I couldn't see American Mary 2. And there's already, while we were making this movie, such a pressure to make it a, a stupid, sexy slasher where it was a girl and she goes around and does this and vengeance. And it's like, no, that's not really her MO. It's a, it's a character study about a woman who loses herself completely with her ambition and horrible decisions she's chosen to make. Things start going really downhill for her after she kills that security card, and it just gets worse and worse and worse for her. It's a film of subtleties, especially at the end, and I know there's a lot of directions the film could have gone in. I think, actually, internationally, the subtleties were more picked up on. I would love anyone that doesn't like the ending or doesn't feel it's the direction they would have liked to listen to the director commentary. Cause we do break it down and how it goes and the flow of it and why it's there. And, you know, it's a stupid thing to say, Oh, read the cliff notes, but you know, there is a lot there. It's not in your face, but you know, I've always appreciated films where you suggest or push the audience to think for themselves, like the end of martyrs, what the hell happens at the end of there? Well, it's interpretive. You have to, you have to pick it up on your own. So you guys are very active on social media and can't help but notice the new project, See No Evil 2. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's so funny. After we were done American Mary, everybody wanted us to make it again. And they didn't say, I want you to remake American Mary. They said, I want you to do like a sexy surgical thriller starring Catherine Isabel. I'm like, yeah, I just made that. And we would go into meeting after meeting after meeting. And part of us were just thinking, dude, where were all you guys when we were trying to make this? Nobody fucking wanted to be on board. And now all of a sudden you want to do it. Uh, we started watching wrestling when Kane was introduced. 
and I remember we got a call from our uh, our agent, and he said, oh, there's a script you need to read right away. And we're like, oh, okay. And I thought right away meant, you know, a week or two, because I'd read so many really disappointing scripts. I was like, fuck, this is depressing. And then he calls me the next day, and he's like, you haven't read the script yet? You need to read it right away. I'm like, oh, so it's like a legitimate, like, director emergency and we sat down and we started reading it and we, we had seen the first scene of evil when it was in theaters and we were reading it we're like is this the same thing holy shit is this is this like a sequel to that movie and there's this one part and jen and i both pushed away from our desks and we're like holy shit we are fucking doing this movie but we we didn't know if they would actually hire us because you know we get a lot of meetings where they just want girls on the list they never really are considering strongly to hire us so we had our, uh, a meeting the next day on on a, a conference call with WWE Studios and Lionsgate, and we were very, very happy to even have such an opportunity. We've always wanted to work with those guys. And we're like, um, we read the script, and no matter what you do, I know you're going to have a really cool movie, so thank you for even considering us. And then uh, it was like a 20-minute conversation the next day. We got a phone call and just said, you guys are hired. And we're like, whoa fucking awesome a lot of people have the misconception that american mary is our first movie obviously dead hooker in a trunk was our first movie even though some people consider it's not a film it is a fucking film it's it's over 90 minutes close enough i mean it had a modest budget but some great films have just like the battery by jeremy gardner which is a fucking amazing film dead hooker in a trunk was a grindhouse love letter american mary was more of an homage to eastern european and uh european and asian cinema and with See No Evil too, it was our opportunity now that, you know, the trailer is out to make our own masked man horror icon. I love Kane. I thought Jacob Goodnight was a great character, but, you know, it didn't deliver as much as I, I felt it could. I think there's some missed opportunities. And I love making our audience guess as to what we're going to do next. Part of the reason we wanted to do See No Evil too is because everyone thought it was such a terrible idea. There's no reason a film doesn't have to be a great film. And to be able to start, kind of recreate this character and reintroduce him to people, maybe people who have seen him, people who haven't, in a really positive horror icon sort of way. I mean, that's such a horror fangirl dream come true. Who gets to design a character from the mask that kills the weapons, the soundtrack? And it was amazing how collaborative they let us be. Like, I think every kill was changed. Every weapon was changed. A bunch of characters got changed. There was something created just for Katie specifically. Because on, on Mary, I realized how fucking funny she is. I was like, you're either comedically genius or accidentally hilarious. Now that we're best friends, I would say accidentally hilarious. And uh, it was so much fun to really get to play something other than Mary with her. Because a lot of people, after she was done American Mary, they're like, oh, you're just going to be this very even, severe, dark kind of girl. And I just was like, you know, there's another kind of darkness you could do. You could be the crazy one who's absolutely, like, you could be the Bill Paxton of Seen No Evil 2. And she's so fucking funny in this. Yeah, it's really an homage to 1980s slasher films, and it's also a very self-aware slasher, and we play with the gender stereotypes as we always do. Yeah, we play a lot with what you usually see in slasher movies. I, I, I'm i so excited for this to finally be fucking out. I mean, we had it finished in February, and we've been just kind of sitting waiting for it to come out, and we haven't been able to say anything, and it's, so, it's like having an awesome kid that you just birthed and then you put it in a fucking closet and you don't talk about it. It's like, I'm actually really proud of this thing. I want to fucking scream it from the mountains. I know, it's so rough. There's so many offers to go into different festivals, but it's like, no, it's a, it's a Halloween release. And obviously, I mean, that's the best time in the world to release a slasher like this. But 
sitting there and waiting with a finished film. Oh, now we have three films that no one's seen, which drives us crazy because people always ask, oh, well, what about American Mary this and American Mary that? We've really grown as filmmakers and cinematically. You'll, you'll see that we've evolved as well as artists. And I think it's really reflected in Cena Weevil and then with ABCs of Death too, which I will mention has no censorship laws. So it was, it was all the way. I have a feeling the MTAA is going to slash the fuck out of our ABCs of Death 2 segment, but I'm really excited for that, I guess. Well, actually, I'm. it's cool how you guys got the job, you know, with WWE and all that to do See No Evil 2, but I'm a little disappointed that you didn't have a tag team match with Vince McMahon or something in order to get the gig. <laughs> we still want to fight the Bellas. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? I could take them. Especially since they're fighting. Two against the world, Nikki. Yeah. Oh, I know exactly. Well, the funny thing is, because we are such rabid fucking wrestling fans. So Kane, when we were in between setups, he would teach me how to wrestle. And God bless Glenn Jacobs, because I am such a, like, a foaming at the mouth fan girl. So he would be over and he'd be like, do you want to learn some wrestling? I'm like, yes. He's like, okay. And I... I, I, it's all very coordinated and I would like jump up and try and pull him down by like putting all my weight on his neck and he'd be like, ow, and I'm like, did I get you? And he's like, that's, uh, that's not actually how we do this. <laughs> I was like, I thought it was, I was beating you in strength. He's like, nope, that would never happen. And we had a deal. He said, uh, he would teach me wrestling and I would teach him about directing and I'm uh, 20% there. I don't know if he learned anything about directing for me, but he, he's such a sweetheart. He's, he's now passed around American Mary to like all of the superstars. I mean, you can't ask for a better billboard than, than Kane. It's definitely on the bucket list to be on Raw. I think they don't want us to be on the show because they know we will never leave. We'll just stay there and we'll travel around with them. Be like, what are we doing tonight? I had like the greatest moment of my life though when we were at SummerSlam. Like we met Stephanie McMahon, but we also met Linda McMahon. And when she was talking to us, she thanked us for everything we had done for the company. And I think my soul actually left my body in happiness. And part of me was also like, where's your husband? I want to talk to him. <laughs> you've you've mentioned uh see no evil 2 and uh, abc's of death uh, 2 how about vendetta what is that project like it is absolutely batshit insane it's almost like uh it's almost like the punisher goes to jail and goes against the kingpin and uh it's starring dean kane Paul, Big Show, White, and Michael Eklund. And if you had told me right before, or like two weeks before we went into prep, that I would be saying Dean Kane is the baddest motherfucker I've ever worked with, I would probably laugh in your face. But holy fuck, is that guy amazing. He has a different coordinated fight sequence every fucking day. Most people wouldn't even be able to get, it, get through that, let alone all the violence he did. The dude had bruises fucking everywhere, and he was giving as good as he was getting. I just... I am so excited for people to see that, especially because he's known for for Superman and Ripley's Believe It or Not, more of these, like, you know, movies that aren't going to give you horrible nightmares. But to see Prison Revenge Dean Cain, it's just a little sexier. I mean, when he beats someone to fucking death and calls them a motherfucking pussy, it's just a tiny bit cooler. It's so cool to be able to give actors an opportunity to play against their type as well. I mean, The Big Show, if you've seen any of his films, Paul always ends up playing something very comedic, very safe, very slapstick, when in fact his acting range is fucking phenomenal. He's funny in this, 
but in an, oh my God, I can't believe he did slash said that just now. And, you know, I do take real offense when people say that WWE superstars can't act. Not only are they amazing athletes that can do all their own stunts, especially if you're the big show or Kane, because God knows there's no stunt double made for you, except I guess maybe each other. But they're amazing performers that get one take to do everything, and they can never break character. So it's very interesting to work with them, and they they get you know they get you know confused as to well why are we doing it again? What did I do wrong? And it's like oh no no it's just it's just film. You did it perfect the first time, and we're gonna make you do it three more times anyways, just so we have options. I secretly suspect that Vince has you killed if you fuck up on one take. I think that's why they, they don't, you know, take second takes. They're just like, we're just going to do it perfect every time. Yeah, but I'm really excited for people to see not only Glenn in See No Evil 2, but to see the big show and Dean Kane in Vendetta, because I guarantee you've never seen these two like this. And thank God. And with a revenge action thriller... You can kill a lot more people than a horror. This is going to make me sound really macabre, but we killed 47 people. That was fucking awesome. Having squibs go off, having all, like, there's a machine gun, there's fucking stabbing, there is everything. And we got to do all these crazy cool kills. And (laughs) every time an actor had his death day, because we had a death tally right about the monitor, I'd go over and be like, you can put your death sticker up there. And they'd be like, you're sick. And I'd be like, I specially made this kill for you. I think you're really going to like it. Maybe that's why I can't make friends so easily. So you said See No Evil 2 is coming out for Halloween. How about Vendetta? Vendetta has a 2015 release. I know, obviously, you released a horror movie in October. I have no idea when you're supposed to release an action movie. Uh, We're still just finishing off our edit right now. But I imagine, God, depends on how fast we get through. Color and sound and stuff will be done by the end of the year, definitely. But I don't imagine they'll want to release it until sometime next year. Your guess, you know, your guess is as good as mine, but you know us in the social media. When we find out, we'll say it very fucking loud when it's coming out. I kind of feel May, but I don't really know. I'm basing that on no facts whatsoever. What about April? That's when her birthday is. Yeah, but what movies come out in April? May exactly. Is, May is the beginning of the summer. No, May is the beginning of the summer blockbusters. I don't want to compete with that just, shit. Just one week before Avengers 13 or whatever. Two, and it's not out till 2016. Godzilla, it's Ant-Man next year. Oh, yeah, you're right. Are there any dream projects for you out there that you really want to do? We're connected to one of our fucking dream projects right now. Uh, Jimmy Palmiotti's uh, Painkiller Jane. And we have, you're such comic book nerds. We have always wanted to do a big screen adaptation for one of those graphic novels. But not the way that you see where, you know, it's like Amazing Spider-Man. And now Peter Parker's the coolest fucking skateboarder kid ever. Like something that actually reflects the pages and the reason why you admire this so much. Yeah, I I love comic book nerd. I get such nerd rage when they take away from what a character has, like an important character piece, just to generalize them. I'm upset that Tony Stark isn't an alcoholic. Yeah, I read of him, Iron Man, as a kid, and he was boozing it up and slutting it up. And they said, oh, in Iron Man 2, he got drunk. On his birthday, I've been more drunk than that on the fucking weekend. So to do Painkiller Jane straight out of the pages is such an honor. And to have a script written by Jimmy Palmiotti, I mean, the script is 
fucking brilliant. Uh, I mean, and unfortunately, we've read a lot of shit scripts in our day. So to read something that is ready to go immediately is such an honor. And everything about Jane is in there because obviously one of the creators wrote it. It's so fucking cool. I remember uh, last Comic-Con, I, the one just, that just passed, Jimmy introduced me to Joe Caseta and I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a really good first impression for this guy because Jane's his character too. And I go over there and I'm like, Hey, and Jimmy's like, these are the directors that are handing, handling Jane. And he's like, oh, good to meet you. And I was like, dude, I promise I will not fuck up your movie. And he looks at me and he's like, uh, okay, all right. And they're kind of crazy. And I was like, no, dude, I swear I fucking will not fuck up your movie. And he laughs and he's like, okay. So when I don't fuck up his movie, I want to go find him again. But he's like, dude, right? Was I right? Didn't fuck it up, though. <laughs> and probably, as you know, and everyone that follows us anywhere on social media knows, we want to do the Deadpool movie more than any one. I mean, we're Canadian. We're fucked up. We like boobs. We like murder. We like tacos. I think we would be the ideal directors to handle that. And honestly, there is no director in the universe that loves Deadpool as much as we do. Self carries a fucking Deadpool mask in her purse. It's amazing over dinner parties, especially when things go bad. You put that thing on, your fucking night is made. And we will cage match any director that gets attached to that before us. We should phone Vince and see if he'll do that. <laughs> if only someone will give us Vince's number. <laughs> When, uh, you know, we kind of, like I said, we threw this open to social media that we're going to be talking to you guys. And there's this, like this weird, you know, almost vendetta sometimes against women who are involved with horror films. And I just don't understand it. What, what, why the hell do you guys think that that's the case? How do you kind of respond to that attitude about women shouldn't be making horror films? Well, we've been unpopular our entire lives. We were bullied through school. We've never been doing this to make friends. The work we do is for the people that obviously we're making it for, the other fucking outcasts like us. I think this industry, not just horror movies, but the world in general, is pretty fucking sexist. I mean, if somebody doesn't like one of our films, they say we're fucking ugly sluts and they don't want to have sex with us and we should put bags over our heads and they should murder us. Yeah, but what do you think of the movie? You never say that. If you don't like the new Tarantino movie, you don't fucking say he's an ugly fucking guy and I hate him and I'd never have sex with him. You just attack the film. But with us, it's always so personal, but it always comes down to name calling, especially with women. Nobody ever says an actor is, is a fucking dumb slut and they hate him. But women always. And I think that's because it's, it, there's what's the repercussion, especially on the fucking internet. Who's going to say, Oh no, you can't do that or take you down or do something to you. It's not like the end of Jane silent Bob strike back where we can go to their places and bust in their teeth. Although <laughs> that would be fun. I do have a newfound appreciation for the end of Jane silent Bob strike back. It's funny because there is so much of it. It's part of the reason I don't ha listen to or read any of my Facebook private messages because there are so many, like, there are people that would say, women can't direct movies, and you shouldn't be doing this. I will fucking kill you. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's how we open the conversation? Like, that's, it just doesn't make sense to me. I would, I would never talk to somebody like that. And it's kind of depressing. Like, even look at, like, celebrities reading mean tweets. Like, when I was a little girl, if I could have talked to, like, somebody I really admired, I would never in a million years think of being so mean-spirited to them. But now, because of the honor. You can be so anonymous on the internet. It's like everybody feels that their opinion is so valid. And it's like, yeah, man, you have an opinion. But just because you can express it doesn't mean it has any fucking value. It's the entertainment industry. It's the only industry in the world. If you don't like what somebody does, you fucking hate them so much. Like Justin Bieber. 
maybe he is a dick. Who the fuck cares? He's a 20-something-year-old guy with more power and money than God who's trying to figure his shit out. Who even knows what's going to become of him? But people get so upset. And, you know, I think people are so much more used to hating on things than being positive about them. Like Guardians of the Galaxy. I read so many, oh, it's a sexist piece of shit movie. It's like, oh, my God, there's so much sexism in the world. We have to stop looking for sexism where there isn't sexism. Yeah, and eh, whatever. It comes with the territory, though, man. It totally does. And we get a lot of hate from other chicks, too, being like, I once read an article that said the Oscar is the worst type of feminist. And what I really hope is those chicks, I hope they go out and make their own movies. Go out and make, if you fucking hate what I do and you think you can do it better, good. Go fucking pick up a camera. Do it in spite of me. Say fuck Jen and Phil every single fucking day. But go out and do something. It's, it's just so much better to create and do something positive than sit there and just natter around about people that you don't like. I mean, Jesus, at least masturbate or something. Do something that's actually gratifying you. Yeah, we worked our asses off to be where we are. A lot of people say we're overnight successes. Oh my God, I wish I was a fucking overnight success. But us and a lot of the other women that are doing the things that we're doing the way we're doing it, get so much shit where as the guys, if they do it, oh my God, well, he's a director. He's made one movie in two shorts, so obviously we can understand that he's a director. He belongs in horror. I have to work 10 times as hard and make way better films to get half as much appreciation. And, you know, that's just how it fucking goes, at least for now. In terms of that attitude and getting, you know, the the hate messages and things like that, and really, you know, evil ones, too. I mean, talking about, like, death threats and things like that. Do you think it is the anonymity in some way of the Internet, or is it something in the culture that it just seems like it's perfectly acceptable to do that in some way? It's kind of weird because we live in a generation of participation awards and people just do whatever the fuck they want. Like when I wanted something growing up, my dad was a small business owner. So instead of being like, hey, dad, can I have 20 bucks? I was taught that, hey, dad, do you have any extra shifts? Everything was you have to work to earn it. And now people come out of college and they're like, where's my fucking Rolls Royce? Where's my fucking job? Like, it used to be that if you saw somebody who was really wealthy and really successful, you'd be like, oh, look, there's Mr. Jones. He worked really hard for it. And now you see Mr. Jones coming down in his Rolls Royce and you go, fuck Mr. Jones. Fuck him for having what I don't have. And it's just, it's just a weird cruelty. And I think something about being anonymous is just... It's freeing. It's kind of like when superheroes put on masks. They don't like who they are and they don't like themselves, but somewhere else they can be something else. They can be something greater and they can make other people feel like shit, which kind of, I guess, might dull the pain of being a complete useless asswad. Yeah, definitely with the anonymous thing, there's that safety feeling because I've met some people that have said horrible things about us online, usually because someone points out, oh, hey, there's so-and-so. They said this about you. They said, what about me? Oh, my God, why? And I'll go over to them and say, dude, what is your fucking problem with me? And they will back the fuck down. And it's like, but why do you have to put that hate out in the world? I know that people go around saying hate or this and all that kind of bullshit, but Seriously, we spend way too much time tearing shit down. And, you know, that just makes it a negative society and a negative environment for everybody. I think all of us can spend a lot more time talking about the things we like and the things that we appreciate. If you don't like something, fucking throw it away, ignore it, don't don't buy another CD, don't buy another movie. Who gives a shit? There's just so much energy put into being negative, and that just begets negativity. It's like a fifth element to that giant ball of hate. Or, yeah, or, or fucking um, Ghostbusters 2, the pink slime. Yeah, it is the pink it's slime. The pink slime. But it just is, it's a negative downward spiral. I mean, dude, that, it's upsetting if people hate us, but it's not going to ruin my day. There's, <laughs> my block list is as long as my friends list. <laughs>
But it's weird. People come off my block list. Like, people who I thought legitimately hated me, and they're like, oh, I don't. I'm like, what? Well, dude, I feel like a Derek Zoolander. I'd be like, why are you acting so messed up against me? Why are you acting so messed up against me? And it's like, oh, there's actually nothing. Oh, it's just because communication is really hard to do from, you know, 140 characters or what have you. You're talking about, at one point, how much work you have to put in and, and the amount of respect you get in some way because of the, the culture with because you're women. Do you find that that's the case when you take meetings in L.A. and you're trying to put something together that they might not take you as seriously? Do you have to fight against that? You know, more often than not, if we are talking to a woman as fucked up as it is, they think that we, especially given the films that we make, they think we're going to come in with a negative attitude. They think that we're going to be like the mean girl of some horror but we are the absolute opposite. I mean, we're very positive people. We try to stay positive and we try to encourage other people for that as well. More often than not, if we're in a room, somebody wants us based off our online presence and our work and what is said about us there. But when we come in, I used to try so hard for people to like me when I went in. Just like when I started out in high school, I could not give a fuck now. So and I are doing very well. We have lots of offers for work. And, you know, I don't think we're going to be struggling or going back to waitressing ever in our future. And I'm so grateful to the fans that support us for that. But I find that, you know, you just have to go in there and be yourself for better or worse. And that confidence makes people trust you and want to work with you. Yeah, and the thing is, dear Penthouse, sorry you fucked up everything for us. Like, people see identical twins, and you can kind of see in their face they think a threesome's about to happen, and they want to know how they're not going to fuck it up. And a lot of the time, you know, you just go into meetings, and you can kind of tell that people aren't taking you seriously, and then you just say your piece, you're a professional, and then by the end of it, they change their tone. Or they don't. I mean, the, the world is filled with opportunities, and it's also filled with assholes. Go after the opportunities and avoid the assholes. Good advice. That's the best, that's the best place to end it. <laughs> <laughs> it's also going to give you a thumbs up for basically taking Truffaut's quote, but putting a lot of F-words in it. I, I really like that, you know, because Truffaut's... <laughs> It's a, it's a lesson we learned from Gary Marshall. He says, if you want to do a strong pitch, throw some expletives in it. Like you can say, hey, this is a movie about this guy, Gary, and he lives down the hall from this crazy chick. Or there's this fucking movie. It's about this guy called fucking Gary. And guess what? There's this batshit fucking crazy girl down the hall. And it's like, whoa, I want to see the second movie. I'm going to pass on the first one. But the, the, the true folk quote was that the best film criticism is to make your own movie. So you just put extra F words in it. That's awesome. I feel enlightened. I love Truffaut. I love his shadows. I like to rip that shit off. <laughs> great artist, borrow. A good artist, borrow. A great artist, steal. Goddamn straight. Yeah, fuck. We're screwed when people start watching Asian cinema. It's done. <laughs> there goes the career. There's a handful of us that watch exclusively like Takashi Miike films and just make notes and rip shit off. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Like I said, thank you so much for taking the time and, and everything. And it's just so much fun to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. I would love, we'd love to be back too. And we can talk more freely about the content of our films. That would be awesome. Yeah. But guys, thank you so much. I've really been looking forward to this. I really admire what you guys do. It's good shit. Thanks to Jen and Sylvia for coming on the show. You can find out more about their work and upcoming films over at our website, projection-booth.com. I'm sure you'll be over there checking it out. Right, Robo? So here is what I got to say to Mike White. You are a creepy lower life scumball piece of shit. You go after the weaker guy because you are a coward. Oh, Jesus. What the hell is the matter with RoboHost? I mean, he did a decent job over there on the uh, Auschwitz episode that you had with Uwe Boll, but for some reason, he's just being a dick the whole time. 
I have no idea. I think maybe he's like got a bug in the programming. It's almost like he's channeling another podcast tonight or something. Yeah, I bet. As a matter of fact, um, I, I think someone's been feeding him transcripts from another show, which you can read on our website, projection-booth.com. It's just amazing to hear someone really go after filmmakers. Um, I don't know, just because they're women or you, Mr. Mike. I mean, for just pointing out sort of, I guess, the absurdity of their misogyny. You need to get that shit straight. As far as me and my associates tearing them down, you're damned right we did. Women in Horror the organization has become a joke. The last few years, many of the best and respected members of that organization have walked away in disgust. Hell, this year they didn't post anything about their supposed charity work they do for Women in Horror Month. All they did is harp about the Soska sisters not getting put in. Masters of Horror, get this straight, assholes. Jen and Sylvia have not earned a place in that organization, nor do I think they ever will. They both have become complete and utter ego cases, and deserve the quick and harsh fall that will be coming their way very soon. Oh, well, you know, whatever dude, or, you know, like, whatever you are. Don't fuck with the lion unless you want the claws. I, I don't even know how to respond to that. This is, this is uh, just utter lunacy here. Well, okay. Well, why don't we just sit with that robo host while we play a preview for next week's show? I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Paramount Pictures presents Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Jessica! Jessica! Who are you? Why have you been following me? I'm in your butt. You want to die, girl. You want to die. Jessica to death. The screen has captured cold, deadly horror before, but this time it's all turned loose in your direction. Let's scare Jessica to death. Rated GP. That's right. We will be back next week with a look at the 1971 film Let's Scare Jessica to Death. We'll be joined by the director, John D. Hancock, and others. Don't miss it. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guests, Tristan Risk and the Twisted Twins, Jen and Sylvia Soska. And I guess we have to thank you, RoboHost. Up yours, losers. I'm not sure if RoboHost will be coming back again, or at least anytime soon, but I really do want to thank you, Iris, for coming on the show and putting up with that angry hunk of scrap. Uh, as for you, the badasses, boobs, and body counts, I hear things are going gangbusters over there. What's the latest with you, and where can people find out what you're up to? Well, uh, you could uh, look me up on badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Uh, I am one of the co-hosts. Uh, Mike Murphy is the other. And basically what we do there is we talk about um, lesser-known uh, exploitation cult science fiction cinema movies like that. And we have lots of fun. We just did The Fearless Vampire Killers. Uh, with, uh, I think it was Philip O'Neill. He's another podcaster. I think he does Swedish Cinemastic. And uh, let's see, I also have one of my own, which is uh, The Movie Fan Attic, and you can find that at themoviefanatic.blogspot.com. And basically what I do there is I invite a podcaster, and we just sit and talk and get to know the podcaster, and then we sit and talk about a movie. 
And I have one more venture that I'm going to be starting here pretty soon. It's called Creative Juices. And basically, and this, I'm sorry, Robo host, but you're going to hate this. But basically what I do is I sit and talk to a female director, writer, uh, actor, author. And what we do is we find out about her and what gets her creative juices flowing. Yeah, I think Robo just uh, shorted out at the concept of, uh, of your show. Well, thanks again for coming on and thanks to everyone for listening. And remember, you can go to our website, projection-booth.com for this week's show and more on it, links and also, all that RoboHost faulty programming we told you about and more about the badasses, boobs, and body counts, which, uh, congratulations, uh, coming up on the 100th episode there. Yes, we are. And we also ask that uh, if you enjoy the show, head over to iTunes and give us a review because, um, you know, even if you don't listen to the show through iTunes, every review helps us in our quest to take over the world. <laughs>
bitches. I'll fucking stomp you down.